our remodel program. We'll discuss the success we're having with our new restaurants and also the opportunity to build more restaurants. And from there we'll wrap it up with Tom Hodeck, our chief financial officer, and Tom will discuss really the other opportunities we have on food margins and everything we discuss today, how it manifests itself into our long-term financial strategy and how that will grow shareholder value. After Tom's finished, we'll open up for Q&A. So our strategy that we're going to talk about today, it's rooted in our best research that we did back in 2020 and 2021. You know, at that time, we did numerous focus groups to better understand 
why do you have to do And for those focus groups, we developed our concept as this project. restaurant design and the ambiance for BJ's going forward. Now, if we're walking away with three, three things today, these are today's key messages. First, we have a very clear vision and strategy to drive sales based on our guest focus work. We have initiatives in place to improve margins, and we're already seeing the fruits of that by our margin improvement initiatives. And with those two, that's going to allow us to accelerate restaurant growth. So again, if you think about it, we've got one, clear vision drive strategy, two, initiatives to improve margins. Those two together will allow us to accelerate new restaurant growth. And believe me, we have a tremendous opportunity to go from 217 restaurants today to over double over time. We believe those, those three key areas, driving sales, improving margins, building quality new restaurants with the right ROI, that will create meaningful shareholder value over time. Now, before I jump into our strategic pillars, let me remind everyone what a strong concept BJ's is. Today, we have 217 restaurants. Our restaurants are a little bit larger in format. They're 7,000 plus square feet. We opened five new restaurants this past year, our first one in the state of Illinois. And we believe we have the potential for 425 plus restaurants over time. Our restaurants are very contemporary, they're high quality, it's what we call polished casual. Um, and polished casual brings us above casual dining, the mass casual dining, but a little bit below the upscale casual dining. We are a place that's really an experiential dining or social dining occasion where we're almost the event of the evening. We have this broad menu, but at the same time we have signature menu items. Those signature menu items include things like our world famous Pazuki dessert, our beer, our brewing prowess, also our slow roast items, as well as our Southern California take on deep dish pizza. 
Our average restaurants generate over $6 million in sales and it includes $1 million in off-premise today. And we do this with a per-person average of around $20. Now, what that means is we bring a lot of guest traffic into our restaurants. A lot of people are coming in at $20 average check to generate $6 million in sales. Our, our, traditionally, our sales are 25% at lunch and 50% at dinner, but we do 25% of our sales in the mid-afternoon and late night. So we have these four day parts, and late night, it's an area that we really own in casual dining. It's been a strong comp sales driver for us currently, and we expect it to be a, a strong comp sales driver for us going forward, especially as consumers continue to normalize to pre-COVID uh, routines. Now, for those um, that haven't seen some of the things we're getting with that we've been doing, I'm going to show a quick update of all the initiatives and things that we've been working on over this last year to give everybody this update in regards to how we're building momentum today at BJ's. Before we get into some of our specifics, 
uh, in regards to our specific strategies. Let me level set everyone regarding the size of the industry we play in. You know, the U.S. casual dining industry is about a $200 billion industry. And it's really part of today's social fabric. It's a place for people to go and gather and socialize. It's an affordable luxury. It's a place where people get to be taken care of. It's also a highly fragmented industry. You know, the top 25 brands, they only make up 23% of the $200 billion in sales. But size and scale does matter. The large players continue to take market share because, frankly, they can invest in technology, they can build awareness, they can manage the supply chains, they can manage inflation and labor. And even through COVID, the large players actually grew their market share, they grew their size, while the independents and smallers actually closed up shop. And going forward, the, large, the larger players will continue to take market share. So what does this mean for BJ's? Well, it allows us to, one, play in this very large sandbox. And it's a sandbox that's frankly dominated by a lot of concepts that came to maturity in the 1990s and 2000s that over time have lost a little bit of their relevancy with their guests. It also it allows us this continued opportunity to take market share from these larger players, but it also allows us to take market share from the smaller independent players that frankly can't invest back into the technology or into systems or to manage inflation in the current uh, environment. Additionally, our polished casual brand positioning, it allows us to kind of pull guests up from the mass market players that, again, kind of lost a little bit of their relevancy and their differentiation. And at the same time, it allows us to take guests down that are going to some of the higher end, more expensive casual dining restaurants, come to BJ's for a more, more affordable dining experience at frankly just as good of an experience. So when we think about this, think about this large sandbox, it's not about growing in a fast growing market, it's about growing by taking market share from all the other players in the industry in this $200 billion industry. Now, the thing I love about this is BJ's has a history of doing this. You know, pre-COVID from 2015, 2019, 18 out of 20 quarters, we beat black box in comp sales. Post-COVID, this last quarter, a few weeks ago, Q3 2023, marked our 10th consecutive quarter of beating the industry in comp sales. And we're doing this with a higher weekly sales average than traditional casual dining. Our sales average is about 60% higher than the average in casual dining. We're doing about 120,000 a week to around 75,000 a week. On the other side of this, we've always been able to build restaurants. We had, from about 20 years, we had a 10% CAGR in regards to adding new restaurants. So this growth mindset, building new restaurants, it's in our DNA. And we have the systems in place to grow our new restaurants. But we've always done it at the right time and with the right quality. So bottom line is that BJ's, we know how to grow restaurants. So as I said before, it's not about growing in a fast-growing market. It's about taking market share in this large, fragmented, $200 billion industry that's part of today's social fabric. And we already have this proven concept that's got size and has scale. We're doing this in 30, rest, in 30 markets today, and we've proven it in, num in numerous different demographics. So thinking about our specific strategy, 
You know, as I opened up today, I talked about this strategy is, is rooted in the guest research we did back in 2020 and 2021. In casual dining, it really comes down to these three things. It's the product, which is the food and beverage. It's the people and how they take care of the guests within the restaurant. And it's the ambiance. It's the energy that comes from the building itself. Now, through all this research we did, it helped us define where we differentiated in each of these areas so that we can lean in, so that we can lean in to each of those areas. So we can lean into the food, we can lean into our beverage, our people, and our ambiance, and harness that differentiation to frankly widen the most and become a better competitive alternative from the other restaurants down the street. Our guest told us specifically on food, it's this familiar transform to brew house fabulous. It's this craft beer and cocktails where cheers is always on, on tap. It's the fact that our food's innovative, but it's not intimidating, and yet there's something for everyone. The guests that our people deliver a hospitality that is engaging and rewarding. It makes you feel comfortable and welcoming when you're in a restaurant space in our people. It's what we internally call gracious hospitality. And guests feel different right when they walk in the front doors of a BJ's restaurant. They feel uplifted and energized by the sight, sound, and motion within our restaurants. They commented that our restaurants feel upscale but not uppity, that our restaurants had energy, frankly, for any dining occasion, large or small. Bottom line at BJ's, it's about the total experience. It's the combination of these core differentiators, the food and beverage, the people, the ambiance, and how they come together to create moments that matter for our guests. Now, when we dug deeper into food, what came out of it was breadth of the menu. It was a key differentiator for us. It eliminated the veto vote because we had something for everyone. We also heard over and over again that they love familiar items and how we do a little twist on it at BJ's. It's items like our deep dish ziti or cherry chipotle salmon. Um, it's our slow roasted wings. It's this higher quality product that we are serving at BJ's. They know when they get food at BJ's that they expect it and know it will be better. So from that guest research, it led us to define our culinary strategy around the term familiar items made brew house fabulous. This resulted in removing some items. It's those items that did not fit the familiar, and we validated that with our menu research and our frequency analysis, and we tested it for over a year. It also had us push into so how do we make other items more fabulous. It made us simplify some areas, yet invest and innovate in other areas to get this brew house fabulous. And we did this, by the way, by maintaining our overall breadth something very important, a big differentiator for the BJ concept. On the people side, we heard it's the way we take care of our guests in our restaurants. It's the service and hospitality levels that make our guests feel special. As a result, we're investing back into our people with all new scripting that just rolled out here in July. We changed our manager training program. We rolled out a new craft card that tells our team members about our company values. We changed the way we onboard people to reinforce our gold standard level of operational excellence so that we can deliver a quality product every time. 
and we started to teach our team members what gracious hospitality meant so that we are making moments matter for our guests in our restaurants. These changes combined with a more focused menu allowed our teams to improve upon our daily execution around our food and to take care of our guests even better and ultimately improve our margins. And today this is showing up in better net promoter scores and overall team member retention. We heard time and time again about the differentiated ambiance compared to traditional mass casual concepts. It's that best in class bar statement, the high ceilings, the linen napkins, all that crafts a higher quality, more relevant and energetic place to go. It's a place that's broadly approachable for anyone or any occasion. You know, we hear a lot about BJ's being a non-chain chain and that we compete against a lot of the regional and local players in the markets that we, uh, that we exist. This ambiance, what we're trying to do here, again, helps create this polished casual positioning. It's a differentiator for BJ's. What this led to was our remodel program, and Greg Lins will talk about that later today, and how that's generating positive sales and, frankly, keeping us relevant in today's space. Now, most companies like to talk about ambiance in the clean and maintained, but in sit-down casual dining where 80% of your sales are done within the four walls of the restaurant, clean and maintain, that's required. It's a must. Differentiating the ambiance, it plays a role in how you make guests feel. It talks to you about your brand personality. So at BJ's, it really is about the total experience. It is how the food comes together presented to the guest by the team member, and is packaged in a relevant, contemporary building and atmosphere. It's the total experience. Look, we know these are the right areas. Every focus group, when you ask guests why they choose, what, what's the top three reasons why they choose a restaurant, it comes down to these things. It comes down to the food and beverage, the service, and the ambiance. So while we've just begun down the strategic path, our report card to date is actually really good. We already rank high in food, service, and ambiance. However, there's an opportunity for us to further differentiate around each of these pillars. And that is what we're going to talk about in even more detail today. So the first two key messages are really around the core of the concept. It's about how we drive sales and improve margins. And my colleagues will get up here in a moment and they'll get into more detail around those strategies to drive awareness, innovate more around the culinary, enhance our people, and elevate our ambiance. And each of these core strategies will continue to widen our moat and drive meaningful comp sales for BJ's and make us a, competitive, uh, a better competitive alternative out there and drive shareholder value over time. Now, as we drive our core business, it opens up the door to number three here. It opens up the door to accelerate restaurant growth, which enhances that overall end goal of sales, margins, new restaurant growth, overall meaningful shareholder value creation. And look, I get really excited about the opportunity to grow sales over time or to grow new restaurants over time. You look at this chart on the casual dining space, it's filled with a lot of concepts that came to maturity, as I said, back in the 1990s and early 2000s. But scale matters, 
as I said, scale and size is important. At 217 restaurants and over a billion dollars in sales, we actually have scale today. And on top of having scale, we've improved ourselves, as I said, in 30 states and in a variety of different demographic markets. We just don't believe that there are that many players in casual dining today that have our runway and have our scale and have already proven themselves in those different markets in a mature $200 billion industry that's part of our social fabric and how we eat. So the opportunity, as I said today, is about taking market share, and this gets me really excited. On top of that, our new restaurants, they're doing really well. The sales are above the company average. Our margins are also above the company average. But at the same time, we have this opportunity to reduce the cost by a million dollars. And we're putting together another prototype for 2025 that will make our restaurants even more efficient and more productive going forward. When we do this, we're targeting to get ourselves back to a 20% return, cash on cash returns, because ultimately lower costs with better margins equal better returns. Now, what's really important here is this new, newer prototype, it's a prototype we built before. We have a lot of these restaurants in our portfolio that are already smaller, and we know what they do in sales and we know what they do in margins. But now, because of all this guest focus work we did over the last couple of years, we know what are the key elements that we must maintain in our new prototype. So while we take out some of the cost to build this updated prototype, it will maintain that differentiation with the best-in-class bar statement, high ceilings, the brew house authority, and the higher-end quality finishes. So look, it's really exciting to be at BJ's today. We've got a strategy focused on creating guest desirability and an opportunity to double our restaurant portfolio while we're improving our margins. This will drive meaningful shareholder value going forward. Now I'm going to turn it over to our executives. They're going to go through in more detail the strategies to drive sales and improve our margins and how we're going to accelerate restaurant growth. We'll start here with uh, Heidi Rogers, our Senior Vice President of Marketing, and she's going to discuss the opportunity we have to drive awareness for the BJ's brand. Heidi? Thank you, Greg, <clears throat> and good morning, everyone. It was a pleasure meeting many of you last night. I had a goal in mind that I would get to meet all of you, and I know I didn't have an opportunity to do just that, but maybe by the end, end of today, we will have that opportunity. Today, I get the opportunity to talk to you about three very important things that will help fuel our growth and momentum. The first one, is our differentiated brand position. I'm also going to talk a little bit about our core segments when it comes to our guests, as well as our awareness strategy that will help build awareness and help propel our market share growth. Before I get into it, my background is a little bit on the agency side, so I spent a lot of time on strategic planning, working with a lot of brands. And those brands, it was interesting because I got to see where they were in their life cycles. And I bring that up because this is an exciting time for BJ's because we have a lot of opportunity to propel our growth 
based on the information that I'm going to share with you today and that our colleagues will also share. So let's get into our differentiated brand position. All right, what we're going to cover today is who we are, what we deliver, and our overall brand promise. BJ's is a restaurant with a brew house soul, and this is a marketing dream. When you think about marketing and a perceptual white map, we own this. There's no one else in casual dining that can say that they brew their own beer. In fact, we are the pioneers of brewing beer as we started doing so in 1996, and we have over 250 coveted awards. There's no one else in casual dining that can take produced beer and deliver it at national scale. So when it comes to who we are, that is a differentiator. In addition, Greg touched on this in his remarks earlier. We spent a lot of time going through research, both quantitative and qualitative, to help us understand what makes us unique and different in terms of what we deliver. And I'd like to touch on this because it's really important. The first one is alive. It's that feeling of an adrenaline rush when guests walk through our door. It's that sight, sound, and motion that makes us different from other casual dining restaurants. In addition, it's the comfort of home. So although we have the energy of a bar, it's the comfort of a restaurant. And whether guests are celebrating, uh, celebrating key milestones or just going in for dinner with their friends, they can feel comfortable and be the best versions of themselves at BJ's. They also trust us. We give them a consistent, great execution in terms of service. And the human connection really counts. So, so today, Chris will talk about gracious hospitality and this idea that we pull out the VIP red carpet without being pretentious. And most importantly, when we talk to these most valuable guests, they come to BJ's to escape the everyday mundane and monotony. So it's truly escape for them, an escape for them, and they love coming to us because we're an experiential brand and we make moments matter. So you may be asking yourself, is this unique to casual dining? And my answer is yes. We dug into the research to validate this, and basically there is this duality of guest needs. And I want to talk about that because in its simple terms, it basically means, hey, on one side of it, we're energetic, uplifting, and exciting, and on the other side, we're comfortable, familiar, and consistent. So some see us as a step above and premium, and Greg touched on that. That's the polished casual. However, we're also seen as affordable, great value. So that's with things like our value propositions, including our daily brew house specials, our happy hours, and our lunch specials. In addition, we have this energy. Things are always happening in our restaurant, but it's also quiet enough to connect. And whether you walk in and you have a, a party of 30 with, that we can accommodate, we also can accommodate a quiet corner booth for date night although I'm pretty convinced when I've done that, my husband's still watching sports. So 
Now let's get into our guest segments. There are two segments that we have identified as our core segments, and there's a lot of opportunity for growth as we look to the road ahead. The first segment is Cheers on Tap. They come to BJ's to celebrate moments like football and happy hour with their coworkers. They make up 37% of BJ's revenue. They're very busy and they're very social. Now the escaper segment looks a lot like the Cheers on Tap, but there are some distinct differences. They're also very social, but they come to BJ's to escape the everyday. This is Susan. Sorry, this keeps clicking on me. Um, this is Susan. So she's a busy mom. She manages work, her work-life balance. They may use us for takeout and delivery, but when she wants to escape from the busy grind of the week, she goes to BJ's to get away. And the escapers make up 24% of our overall revenue. Now, if you listen to nothing more of my remarks today, this is the one you have to pay the most attention to. So this is what gets me really excited, and when we talk about headroom for growth, this is amazing. So what we know is the cheers on top and the escapers that I just spoke about make up 60% of our overall revenue and 70% of our diners on a monthly basis. Now, we have 19 million social experience seekers, which is that, those two groups, but there's 9 million of them that have yet to discover our brand within a 10-mile radius of our restaurants. So when you think about growth opportunities, this is something that we're going to be focused on in 2024 and beyond. And when we talk about headroom for growth in terms of unaided awareness, we do have a gap to the mass competitors. I keep teasing Tom about this because it's in red, but it really should be in green. I know that it says 12%, but for me, this is a dream because we can make that 12% grow in terms of aided awareness and unaided awareness with our marketing, amplification, and awareness strategy. So we have a lot of opportunity to grow here, and as long as I've been at BJ's, I've seen these numbers in the single digits, so we've done a good job of closing the gap, but we need to invest in the brand, which we are committed to doing, to ensure that we reach those 9.3 million people and we close the gap on unaided awareness. In addition, as we think about those 9 million guests, just like Joe and Susan, we have a messaging strategy as we head into 2024 that connects. I like to call it the heart, brain, and wallet strategy, and I want to take a moment and talk about this. So we have our reach campaigns, which happen twice a year, and we use things like connected TV, digital video, and linear TV to build awareness at scale, and those are in select markets, and that's really heart. So we're reaching out to those people who have not discovered the brand and telling them who we are. And based on concept essence, those commercials really tap into the experience that people have at our restaurants and how they celebrate their special occasions with us. In addition, we have Always On Media that supports social and display to drive action through product and value messaging 
And this is where that wallet messaging comes in. It's things like our value propositions, our daily brew house specials, our happy hour, our lunch specials, and the late night day part. In addition, social plays a big role in our business, both organic social and tapping into cultural moments. And I want to touch on that for a moment because when we think about organic acceleration, we've got product differentiators that are signature to us that nobody else can own. And we tap into that on a human level in our organic acceleration social. The Pazuki dessert is beloved, it's world famous, and nobody else has it. And we have things like our merchandise strategy that have increased engagement by over 40%. In addition, we have Beer Authority. For all of those that joined for dinner last night, you got to experience that beer dinner. And we do our job to connect with guests and post about that as we think about brewing prowess and our beer authority. And Putnam's done a great job since he joined the team just 10 months ago creating these innovative products that we can talk about in the social space. And we know that we've won if people are taking pictures and posting about it. And Putnam has done a great job giving us those things to work with. In addition, in social, we want to connect on a human level to become a part of the conversation. And much of this is outside the conversation of casual dining. So we use things within the social split space, including content remix, video effects, audios, and events that connect with guests. One of my favorites this year, Taylor Swift, you might know her, the Eros Tour. We had a lavender lemonade that Putnam developed for us, and we tapped in the, into the idea of using Taylor Swift and her friendship bracelets to launch our new product. In addition, we have a lot of people that speak for the brand without us even asking them to, like Bill Hader from Saturday Night Live. In a moment, I'd like to take the opportunity to share with you our recent brand commercials that run on linear TV, connected TV, and digital video. This is Lauren, escaping rush hour for her favorite wings and tea. Here she is when he popped the question on Suzuki Tuesday. And here she is, sharing OMG, I'm engaged with her favorite friends over her favorite dishes. Yum. Congrats, Lauren. And here she is, years later, remembering extraordinary times while creating new ones. Escape to Extraordinary, only at BJ's Restaurant and Brew House. So you can see that we're tapping into the experience, a world-famous Pazuki dessert, and our brewing prowess. But most importantly, we're taking what we learned from the Cheers on Tappers and the Escapers and tapping into those moments that matter for them throughout their entire life journey at a BJ's.
I did want to take a moment to discuss industry media consumption trends. It's up here. It's not sinking. So, just so you know, it is bouncing around on me, like without touching it. It's not synced. All right, I think I could carry on if that's okay. All right. All right, so we continue to leverage the growth when it comes to media trends. And when you think about linear TV and traditional TV, that's something that, leaded, that led the way up to four years ago. Now it's all about digital video and connected TV, which basically over the next two years we'll see double-digit growth. And that works to BJ's advantage. Because of our market scale, we can be super geo-targeted with one-to-one -one messaging that connects with our Cheers on Tap and Escapers. And I want to talk a moment about boosting our media strategically. We know that we have an awareness opportunity, and we know we have to find those 9.3 million guests. And in order to do that, we need to invest in media, and we're willing to do that because over the last 18 months, we've been testing programs, and when we run our digital videos, we see a 2% lift in comp over the industry. And because of that, we've made the commitment to spend approximately 20% more in our media spend. We'll lean into a higher mix of connected TV and digital video to drive reach and awareness. I also want to take a moment to talk about local marketing domination. This is something that we've been piloting over the last six months. And when you think about this, this is us giving our operators the tools to become sales builders and the mayors of their own communities. So what we will be working on is a three-tiered approach that allows the restaurants to get out into the community and become a part of it and start to build relationships. And this will happen with out-of-home media, PR and events, and local outreach. And I would be remiss not to talk about a few of our key signature items. The Pazuki dessert is one of them. I know we had a couple of those last night. Um, Putnam's constantly innovating around them, so I might eat one a day. But we are celebrating 100 million Pazukis sold, and that is quite a feat. And that, when I think about it, is over 100 million smiles. We've also got the return of our fan favorite, S'mores Pazuki, that Scott shared last night. 
And when we post about anything on social, everyone wants to talk about the S'mores Kazuki. In addition, we've been partnering with major influencers. We launched the first of its kind, the, the Halloween Spooky Pazuki with Zach King, where we've received over 17 million impressions, and that combined with our PR and earned support, we have had over 150 million impressions, and it became our best-selling Pazuki by three times. I started this conversation today by, by talking about who we are and what makes us different from a brand positioning perspective. And I talked about being a restaurant with a brew house soul. And those that joined us for dinner last night, you got to experience that yourself. And here we continue to innovate around monthly seasonals that are on trend. We highlight this through a, through a social content video series called Pint Class, where our brewers, Alex and Aaron, build relationships with our guests. In fact, Pint Class will launch in honor of Grand Crew, which tapped last week, and you all had the opportunity to try it last night. Lastly, we have our five course beer dinners that happen five times a year, and we know that that's differentiated to us. Nobody can do that and we have over 33,000 guests participate in those every year. So with that, I'd like to turn the meeting over to Putnam Shin, our Chief Growth and Innovation Officer. Today, he'll talk about culinary development and growth overlays that will encompass market headroom and awareness amplification to help build solid growth in BJ's core. Putnam? Good morning. My name is Putnam Shin, and I'm the Chief Growth and Innovation Officer. And I'm new here. I started here 11 months ago, and for the prior to this, for the last 20 years, I spent my time mostly in entertainment and media, theme parks, and hotels, in management consulting, in the Walt Disney Company, and Merlin Entertainment. So I look forward to bringing new perspectives to not only BJ's but the industry. And it's just good to be here. And it's good meeting everyone here last night as well. So thank you. Today, I want to talk about how recently we've been accelerating our momentum in two areas, culinary development and growth overlay initiatives. But before I do that, I want to get back into the foundation of everything, of who we are at the core, our culinary proposition. And that is familiar, made brew house fabulous. This is who we are. This is how we're positioned. This is why we're differentiated. This is our culinary proposition. So what does this mean? Well, first, there's the familiar. The mac and cheese, the chicken wings, the steak and shrimp, the s'mores. That's familiar. Why? Because familiar brings comfort. Familiar evokes nostalgia, and familiar brings mass relevance. We are for everybody, and it's just good to be here. We serve familiar. 
but we add something extra to it. That extra that makes coming to BJ's worth it. It's not just mac and cheese, it's couscous mac and cheese made into a ball, fried with special dipping sauce that makes a share experience social. It's not just wings, it's slow roasted that retains the juiciness. It's not just steak and shrimp, but it's made with a special sauce that's specially plated for that visual wow. Or it's not just s'mores, which oftentimes when we do it, it's either overly burnt or not cooked enough. But at BJ's, it's always perfectly roasted as a marshmallow to a golden brown served in a pizuki format. This is the fabulous to our familiar. But we're in the precipice of something. Something that's been seeing us elevate our culinary promise to a higher level. And this initiative picked up momentum recently in 2023. And those of you who were with us last night got to saw some of this in person for the before and after. But here are some examples of what we've done in 2023. The top is the before and the bottom is the after. You'll see on the left-hand side an example of some of our margaritas, the before and after, where we've actually represented this into a more insta-worthy way. Or to the second picture, the peach margarita changed into the peach bovarita, where we literally not only added a visual, but a literal pop to it. The ribs or the chicken Caesar salad are now replated with a visual wow and a theatrical side of it where you take the knife out and it has a social element to that. This is what we mean by elevate. This is what we mean by familiar made brewhouse fabulous. So why are we doing this? In today's post-COVID, new generation of guests who eat out, they're looking for something different. You know, gone are the days when people come to casual dining and just eat out so they don't have to cook. Guests are looking and eating with their eyes. They're looking for unique. And they're bragging about it socially. They want better. They want wow. They want the total experience. And because guests are looking for this, we need to step up to that ask. On the culinary side of that promise, we're shooting for that magic formula. And we know that in the triumvirate of taste, visual, and theater, when we hit all three, that's when we have created something wow. And that is why we're doing this. That's what started with our existing core items. But we're not just investing back into our existing items. We're developing new ones as well. And to the extent that we develop new items, we actually are doing this selectively and targeted with objectives. The first one is yielding up. You'll see some of the new appetizers, the garlic shrimp appetizer or the hickory brisket nachos, that increase reach and overall category incidence of all the guests who order appetizers. Or the premium entrees like the surf and turf that encourages upgrades to higher priced items or some of the premium drinks you see in the bottom like the tipsy snowman or the premium non-alcoholic beverages that broadens the appeal and increases both incidence and upgrades. The second objective is to create seasonal followings. We want to develop cult followings of items that are only available certain times of the year, but the same time every single year. Like the s'mores that's only available in the summer or the spooky pizuki, a recent innovation only available during Halloween, and it turns out to be a huge hit this year for us. It achieved the highest incidence of 
any dessert in BJ's history, three times the last next best-selling seasonal dessert. And the third area for us is value, where we're innovating lower-priced items so that we remain within the reach of our value segment. So how are we doing so far? Well, on the left-hand side, you can see the pace. In the first half of the year, the first six months, we've done four of these upgrades. And by the time we hit the second six months of the year, we've increased that to 15 items. Momentum is growing. And on the right-hand side, you can see the four objectives of our development, and you can see that it is working. Whether it's the enhanced core, where the items are selling double, or items going from eighth place to now our number one seller on the list, or in the yield up category, where our NPS are improving, or in the seasonal followings, where we have the best selling dessert in BJ's history, or in the value segment, where more guests are now entering the category, where we see the overall appetizer category now growing. And because this is working, this is what gives us conviction that this is the direction we need to be heading in. And this leads us to our vision. Our vision is that in three years' time, 50% of our items, through innovation, are going to have an upgraded wow. And that 20%, again, through innovation, is going to appeal back to the value segment. We are investing back into our product, and we have a plan. It's ambitious, but it's methodical, and it's tangible. This is our clear vision. This is our strategy, and this is what we're all pulling towards. And in this video, we'll hope to show you some of the things that we've been talking about.
And to complement our endeavors in elevating our food, we're also elevating the way in which we sell and present our food to our guests. The first example of this is the menu format, where we innovated a better and more visually stimulating menu. More images will showcase our culinary upgrades. An improved physical menu quality better evokes our polished casual positioning and better visual merchandising, which we've shown in tests have increased both traffic and check, and this is rolling out at the beginning of next year. Another example is our loyalty program. Today, we have 9 million members across our 217 restaurants. And the data shows that when a guest becomes a loyalty program member, that their frequency increases, they have higher average check, they come more off-premise, and they come so more often during off-peak, and we can have a more personalized relationship with them. And our plan is to both grow new members and amend some of the features so that we increase frequency and improve engagement. You know, as an example, we know that if we can get a guest to come four times a year, we hit an inflection point. They come more often, they spend more per visit, and we get a higher share of restaurant visits. That guest becomes a loyal guest. So we're designing our perks, whether overtly mass or individually targeted via personalized offers to get to four visits and get to four visits sooner. And on top of that, we're able to target them. Using personalized offers, we can actually induce higher frequency using a data-driven approach. We can target guests that we know are not due for another visit recently or soon based on their history of frequency patterns and actually induce them to come. And this has worked not only 14, up to 15 to 40% of the time, but we know that 100% of these visits are incremental. This is a powerful tool and this is a powerful outcome for us. Today, our loyalty members and comprise less than 20% of our revenue. And our goal is to double this over the years. The third exciting area of growth for us are subscription programs. We have proven through tests and initial launches that this has been very profitable for us. But to succeed, we need to leverage assets that BJ's has an advantage in, assets that other people cannot copy. And for us today, that is our Beer Authority and Pazuki. And the first one with Beer Authority, the Beer Club subscription program has been a stable performer for us so far. But it's only been in California. So there is tremendous growth potential to the extent that we want to expand this outside California. The Pazuki is actually an exciting opportunity for us. I mean, as a product, it has much wider reach. So we did a beta launch of a subscription program and in that beta launch, we actually sold out all of our passes in the first eight hours. And so far in the results we've seen, we've seen both significant uplift in traffic as well as revenue per guest. Across both Beer Club and the Puzuki Pass, the uplift has been pretty compelling. Frequency has increased to the point where revenue per guest has increased two to four times between before and after subscribing. The uplift patterns have been consistent month after month. And because both of these items are high affinity items, we've seen very little churn so far. Guests in these clubs are sticky. 
there's significant headroom in both of these, and potentially more as we identify other unique BJ's advantages. My last example today is going to be off-premise. You know, in a post-COVID world, this area has grown to be a significant portion of our business. And in 2023, we actually outgrew the industry. We beat the industry by two percentage points over the year. And going forward, our strategy is to protect and grow this part of our business. And we're going to do this in three ways. The first thing is we need to be in the consideration set. We need to be in the top three choices when consumers pick the right occasion to order out and that we're in the food category that they want to serve. The second area is a seamless user journey. You know, we've painstakingly gone through every single touch point and it's basically sought to improve every part where the consumer interacts with us to make it a use, useful and painless experience for customers. And the last area is usage expansion. Whether through channel expansion like catering or in formats like a six-pack beer or ready takeaway that we sell inside our restaurants. So whether through menu formats, loyalty, subscription, or off-premise, we have exciting areas for growth overlays. So my colleague Heidi has talked about how we have headroom in a market that our awareness is amplifying. I've taken us through how we are developing our culinary proposition and how we have exciting growth overlays. In a minute, I'm going to hand it over to my colleagues Chris and Greg who will talk about our gracious hospitality and how we're going to energize our ambiance, which together, this is what's going to give us solid growth in BJ's core. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Chris Pinzak. Thank you, Putnam. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Pinsack, Chief Restaurant Operations Officer. I've been with BJ's. I'm the old guy. I've been here for 19 years. And uh, as Greg mentioned to start off the day, get this to work. As Greg mentioned to start off the day, and you heard mentioned by Heidi and Putnam already, gracious hospitality is our service philosophy here at BJ's. We believe that hospitality is the difference between a great restaurant and a good restaurant now and moving forward. We also believe that food quality is the price of entry moving forward. And we believe what Maya Angelou wrote, which was, people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them, how they made, how you made them feel. <laughs> I forgot. At BJ's, we strive to make our guests feel special every single day. You know, and it's working. Here's a quick scorecard of us versus the competition. It shows us scoring very well. This really is a testament to our team members. Executing a, a large menu is very difficult, and to average six percentage points better than our competition on food and beverage is a great win for our team members. Additionally, we will score well in ambiance, consistency, cleanliness. You know, the only uh, note on here that's in red is speed. And an interesting note on speed, you know, in my 19 years with BJ's, we've looked at increasing our speed numerous times. And what we've learned is, yes, speed is important. Not as important as accuracy or quality. We will always err on this side. But what our guest really wants 
They want us to work at their speed. And that's what our goal is, to operate at the speed of the guest and score well in the pace of the meal. And by the way, 30% of our guests order a Pazuki dessert, so roughly one-third of our guests stay a bit longer than the casual dining meal. Overall, our team members do an amazing job, and I think you saw that last night. Let's take a minute and listen to a few. Let's hear how they feel about BJ's, our culture, and some gracious hospitality. Hi, I'm Carlos Rodriguez. My name is Chad. I'm Nicole. Teresa Campos. My name is Raven. I'm not coming to work, so. Nobody says that. I do. <laughs> I love the guests. That is why I like working here. I love my regular customers. I have Randy, I have Debbie, I have Doc. The secret to having the relationships is actually caring. Dave gives me that opportunity to kind of move up and do things that I want to do. We like to carry one of these fun things around. Guys, our core values, right here. I think guests or anybody really can see through a facade. Caring about them brings them again. We're always trying to strive for that uh, gold standard. To me, gracious hospitality means just going above and beyond. I think it pays to be kind. So you can make or break somebody's day. Also, just a little bit of added fun in there. You know, they're here for an experience. I want people to come in here to have a great, thrilling, and, and enjoyable experience. There's always better and better, higher levels to go to. I used to say this is way better. I am thrilled to be a part of this agent. Some of the best things I've ever worked with. I love that video. We have great team members. And this past year has really been about readying them for growth. You know, like many of us in casual dining, after the pandemic, we needed to hire and train about 18,000 new team members. And, and we took a very balanced and thoughtful approach. And, the, you know, the team, they executed it fiercely. We targeted hiring team members with a high hospitality IQ. You know, we knew we needed to increase our product quality, so we put, uh, and we also needed to increase our profits. So we put a game plan in place to do that. And let's take a look at what we did and what we are doing. You know, the first thing we needed to do was hire the right people. So we've been very intentional about our hiring. Like I said, looking for those team members with a high hospitality IQ. And in order to ensure gold standard training, we focused the teams on proper onboarding and training the right number of team members based on the number of experienced trainers that we had in the restaurant. This was very successful, and as you can see, we're currently beating the industry in retention. This has also helped our bench strength grow as we need tenured team members to help open in new markets. You know, lastly on this slide, we've seen some large savings in our training and overtime as we get back to our pre-pandemic and better than pre-pandemic staffing levels. It's a nice win for our teams. It's also a nice win for our guests. You know, next, we took the opportunity we had, as Greg mentioned, to enhance our hourly training. We evolved the traditional steps of service into a more hospitable conversation with the guest, giving them choices around our beer, the pizzuki, 
as well as scripting to help remind our team members of our brew house specials, our loyalty program, and our seasonal beers. You know, as we resumed opening restaurants, we updated our opening process by increasing the live training days by seven. We also increased the sales generating weeks by one through implementing a soft opening and a grand opening process. You know, during the grand opening process, we introduce our guests to our beer through a beer experience night, much the same as you all experienced last night. You know, we're always looking for opportunities to be more efficient in our kitchens. And again, we took the opportunity this year to look at our prep systems. We reorganized them to align with the skill of the team member more accurately, created greater repetition by having the kitchen team members prep the same list every day, and we simplified multiple multi-step prep items, which not only saves us labor, but also saves us in portioning and supplies. You know, we targeted these efficiencies to take effect in conjunction with a mid-year menu reduction uh, that we had already planned. And in June, we reduced our menu by 17 items. You know, as I said, we needed repetition in prep. We also needed repetition on the menu items in order to get our recipes completed accurately and on time. The menu reduction immediately helped increase the speed and the product quality coming from our kitchens. It reduced prep hours as we removed 25 prep recipes, and it lowered food waste due to the elimination of 30 SKUs. As you can see on the slide, we now have approximately 100 menu items, and we are seeing a 20 basis point margin benefit from both the enhancements in prep and the menu reduction. Another nice win. You know, on the technology side, here are a few of the, few, uh, few of the guest-facing items we launched this year. We know that the guest has less anxiety when uh, they know where their food is in the process. So our IT team created this digital tracker that you can see on the screen. It looks like a beer glass. Uh, it fills as the order is prepared. It gives the guest confidence with real-time visual updates and curbside check-in functionality for the guests as they arrive at the restaurant. Our automated wait list gives our guests the ability to call the restaurant and put their name on the wait list using voice recognition. We have seen already an increase of 100% in this application and in our dine-in waitlist entries. This also increased team member productivity because they're not on the phone constantly and they're able to spend more time with the guests in the building. And the last one on this slide, the takeout status board. You may have seen this. If you're in the room, you may have seen this last night. This monitor and shelving unit are located in the takeout area of all of our new restaurants and, our re and many of our remodeled restaurants. As you can see here, both third-party drivers and our takeout guests who have already paid can pick up their food and go. If, you, if the food is not yet ready, it will be prepared on the, uh, be on the right side of that screen up there that you can see on the preparing side of the board. This gives us greater organization, convenience, confidence, and increased team member productivity. A great win for us. On the team member side, uh, we have, or we're beginning to test on our server handheld tablets, and what we're calling this is a hospitality dashboard. And in its current form, it gives the servers allergen and gluten information, so they're able to help the guests more quickly. Additionally, it lets the team member know when their food is ready, as well as when the table is set. These coursing alerts help reduce the number of steps a team member needs to make, walking to and from the kitchen, looking for their food or for a newly set table. We see quite a bit of opportunity here to help our team members be more efficient, save steps, and deliver even more gracious hospitality than we do now. We have also digitized over 95% of our management checklists. 
This not only gives us better reporting and follow-up ability, but also is saving us money. And then artificial intelligence. We have been using artificial intelligence to help us forecast sales. You know, our sales forecasts drive the allocated hours for scheduling and, help, uh, and, and also the prep amounts for food. So accuracy here is very, very important to us. Let's take a little bit closer look at this AI. You know, as you can see here, the AI helped us get very accurate on our sales. And, you know, we launched it in mid-Q2, and now we're forecasting within 0.1% accuracy. Again, reminder, sales forecasts drive our allocated hours for scheduling and prep production. So, you know, inaccuracy here costs us money, right? An over or underscheduled number of team members, we lose money. Inaccurate prep production pars, and we either don't make enough or we make too much. Lost money. You know, the increased accuracy from AI has improved our labor, reduced our food waste, and really, you know what, it's given the GMs back some valuable time to do other things besides sit at a computer and try and figure out sales. You know, looking forward, as we continue to refine the AI forecasting capabilities, we'd like to get to a point where the AI tool can build team member schedule templates, and in the kitchen, we're looking at ways it can help us with inventory management or in ordering systems, and I'm sure there's a lot more there as well. Uh, it's a lot of good stuff, and I, our IT team has always got lots of great things in the pipeline, so we're really proud and happy to have them. But listen, as I said to start, our goal this year was to ready the team for growth, and we've made great strides. In Q3 of this year, our hospitality net promoter score is up three percentage points from 2019. Our PACE score is up five percentage points from 2019. And our IPLH, which is items per labor hour, it's our internal efficiency metric. Let me give you a quick example of how that looks. You know, the traditional, let's say, uh, a six-person cook line, and you can see that we have uh, four items per kitchen IPLH on there. That means that our teams are producing 24 more items per hour than we were in 2019. Some huge wins there. We've had some great savings in labor from the initiatives I mentioned, and you can see it broken down here on the slide. From just these initiatives, we're seeing a 50 basis point improvement. So bottom line, the operations team, we're ready for growth. So I guess the only thing left here is to get Mr. Greg Lins to come on up and speak to where we're going to grow and how that's all going to work. But we're going to take a 10-minute break first. <laughs> so... Uh, what time is it right now, everyone? Let's see. It's 15 after. How about we get back in our seats at 25 after, and we'll resume at that time. Thank you all for your attention.
just it's just the front and back, right?
I hope you all like the Grand Cru. Grand Cru is my favorite beer. So once a year. And and it I think as Greg Levin mentioned, you can uh you can store it for a couple of years and it's still a great beer. So do you, you think everybody's back? Should we get it going? Okay. Great. Good morning, everybody. Uh, you know, once again, my name is Greg Lenz. I've been with, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> well, I, my voice today. I've been with BJ's uh, since 2003, leading our construction, design, and development teams. Uh, today, I'll, I will first talk about our successful remodel program and then review our new restaurant growth plans for 2024 and beyond. So uh, let's jump into the remodels. The overarching, goals, oops, the overarching goals of our remodels is to drive sales and deliver strong ROIs. At the same time, we wanted to make sure that we strengthened the key design elements. Thanks, Greg. The key design elements that our guests told us they loved our best-in-class bar statement, our handcrafted beer that we brew in our own breweries, our unique high-energy brew house vibe and design, this uplifting social oasis with a brew house soul. Our design teams prepared three different design plans based upon guest feedback. These plans can be accomplished together or separately. The standalone remodels include an entire new bar with our signature 130-inch video wall, our quartz countertops, and relocating 39 beer taps. The dining room remodels that we call Engage the Senses include a new beer chalkboard, new lighting and music system, all ductwork painted to its natural galvanized state, and new tables and chairs. The capacity additions is where we went into some restaurants and optimize the seating by adding tables. Our restaurants are designed with flexible seating so we can easily accommodate a party of 20 enjoying a birthday celebration, a party of six, a party of four, or one and two in the bar watching a game. Our remodels continue to perform very well in 2023 we will have completed 36 remodels at an average cost of 365,000 and generating about a 20% return. More importantly, we learned what to focus on in our 2024 remodel plan. The bar refresh has an immediate impact and was a noticeable wow to our guests and team members. We learned that where we can add capacity and especially table counts, this was a win for our guests and delivers a solid sales lift. The new lighting and upgraded music systems continue to be a guest and team favorite. And all these key learnings will be incorporated into our 2024 plan. Rancho Cucamonga, this is uh, one of our big boomer restaurants. It was built in 2005. Uh, in the before photo, you can see the older-looking bar with the dated dark wood and mica panels. That's our frame there. Uh, and on the other side, you can see a lighter, more contemporary bar statement featuring our 39 beer tops under our signature 
130-inch TV. You can probably notice these taps here. So they kind of interfered with, in the, in the old model, interfered with uh, uh, the guest and our bartender interaction. So when we moved them back behind the TV, really made a big difference. Now, this is our bar in Arlington, but it's the same one that you just saw in uh, Rancho Cucamonga. It's the same prototype. And uh, you can see the, the new white oak tables. You can see our new chalkboard. You can see the beer tanks in the back and our new 130-inch TV. And then a close-up of the new 39 beer taps. So high energy, really what we're trying to do here in our remodel. It's a good, good, uh, good example of it. So this next photo, we call this our barrel booth remodel. So I can, this photo here, as you can see, we demolished that room. And then we added, to the right, we added uh, three 84-inch Pullman booths. And I, actually about two weeks after we uh, finished this remodel, I, I was up in this restaurant. It's in Bakersfield, California. And in, those booths were full with uh, two youth soccer teams, and then the parents in one booth. And it's really a perfect use uh, for those three booths and for that room. Uh, as you guys know, we're, we are well known to be a large party restaurant. This is our Sacramento restaurant in Natomas, California. Uh, you know, just really has our, brand, our new brand colors. And every time we remodel, we try to do something to the exterior, try to get an immediate pop. And it's a good example of what we did here. We have the contrasting brick accent and our BJ's brand colors that we added here. So this is the exterior of our Summerlin restaurant. This also has our new brand colors and our new paint on the silo. Through our guest focus group, we determined that the silo has the ability and the signature design elements going forward into our new restaurant. So we're going to add this. It's an iconic look for BJ's. We can really differentiate ourselves. We can add signage to it. And uh, our class of 2024 and 2025, we're going to add this silo to the exterior of our restaurants. So our platform from growth is solid. Our marketing and brand awareness is growing. Our culinary innovation and growth overlays are strong with great momentum. Chris just discussed in our gracious hospitality focus, and we have successfully energized the ambience of our restaurants. This all equates to solid growth of the core. So now I'm going to take a little drink, and then we're going to move on to our uh, new restaurant growth. Our new restaurants are performing very well, and we're just getting started in terms of accelerating our new restaurant growth and further expanding our national footprint. Part of the power of the BJ's brand is how well we perform in diverse communities and trade areas. Back in 2003, prior to starting at BJ's, when I was performing my personal due diligence on the BJ's, I recall walking four successful high-volume restaurants all with very different demographic and psychographic profiles. Knowing that BJ's was successful in all these differing trade areas gave me great confidence back in 2003 that we'd become a successful national brand. 
And now today, with 217 restaurants averaging over $6 million in sales, I'm even more confident. Again, as you saw in Greg Levin's slide and presentation, with only 217 restaurants today, we have a tremendous growth opportunity in front of us. When I think about some of our peer group with 600 or 900 restaurants, there's no reason that our BJ's concept cannot reach that level over time. We have plenty of market share to take from older casual dining concepts, many operating with over 1,000 restaurants in trade areas that we can dominate. By the way, this 425, this was done a few years ago, or 10 years ago, excuse me, and based on my experience, when we, do a new, when we prepare a new one, you know, that'll change quite a bit and grow quite a bit. As of today, we have a great national footprint and base of restaurants with 59 in California, 36 in Texas, 22 in Florida, and 14 in Ohio. We're well positioned to continue growing from Florida to the Northeast, plenty of growth in the Midwest, the Ohio Valley, Texas, and the West. You know, our development strategy has been consistent over the years. Our teams focus on acquiring AAA sites that will generate high sales volume where we can leverage our supply chain, supervision, and brand awareness. We have a flexible real estate strategy so we can convert existing Sorry about that. Sorry, we did that. Build new prototypes. We can purchase land. We can ground lease. And we have a very successful sale leaseback program as well. Over the years, we've been able to secure sizable landlord allowance dollars, and we will continue this strategy going forward. This slide here emphasizes the power of our concept. We're a leader in guest traffic per square foot in AUVs. Partly because of this, we're a preferred tenant for the development community and for other tenants in the shopping centers. Our site selection team is proven. We're an experienced team. We have very successful restaurants in many diverse trade areas. And we'll be opening in our 31st state, the state of Wisconsin, early next year. We've proven that we can be successful and expand nationwide. We have strong sales in all six of these restaurants that you see. And they have a, all have a very different demographic and psychographic profile. You can see, if you know the Washington, D.C. area, uh, in Gainesville, Virginia, higher income, Hagerstown, Maryland, you know, not that far away, both restaurants perform really, really well. San Antonio, Texas, in the rim, if you know the rim, it's a north part. Uh, New Braunfels is kind of a freeway-oriented site, uh, lower income. And then we just opened one <clears throat> in the south of uh, uh, San Antonio, again, very different demographic and psychographic makeup here. And then if you know the kind of our hometown, the LA area, uh, Oxnard, California, freeway oriented site, more middle income, and then Westlake Village, uh, higher income area, both restaurants perform really well. Our new restaurants are generating close to seven million on average with a check average of only $20. This is a big part of the reason we have remained a preferred tenant 
and why we get first shot at all new sites that come available in the development community. What's also so encouraging about our strong restaurant performance is that we know over the longer term these restaurants will continue to improve in both sales and margins. You know, as we talked about earlier, the new prototype format for the class of 2024 features our high-energy, contemporary American brew house design with our signature back bar statement, the 130-inch video wall, an impressive large entry feature of 30 feet, a signature exterior silo. We have an overhead keg art design feature in this restaurant, high ceilings, oversized windows, and best-in-class lighting and AV. In addition, our design teams are working hard to take the best of what we've learned here and design our new Proto 2025 for future growth. Simply put, our future prototypes and new restaurants will continually improve and elevate the guest experience and ambiance, innovative food and gracious hospitality, so we can further widen the moat from our peers. The class of 2024 and 2025 restaurants will be about 600 feet smaller than our existing prototype. Because we've built this prototype footprint in the past, we know it will generate strong sales and margins at a lower investment cost. This new proto footprint features our back bar design versus the island bar design in our current prototype. You saw the island bar design last night. This floor plan has proven to be more efficient in labor with better hospitality and speed metrics. And during peak periods, this prototype, we staff 28 to 30 versus 32 to 34 in our existing prototype. It's important to reinforce that our prototype that we're building in 2024 and 2025 is a slightly modified Proto 7 that we've built in the past. We're very experienced in operating and constructing this restaurant. With that in mind, this new prototype has proven to generate very similar top-line sales to our slightly larger restaurants, and we are targeting about $7 million in sales and about 100 basis points in improved margin. We have seen margin improvement in both labor and operating expenses with this new footprint. As Greg Levin said earlier, our target is to reduce investment costs in 2024 by about a million dollars over the 2023 NRO investment. And based upon our past performance, we have a proven prototype that can achieve both the sales and ROI targets in 2024. Our target investment for 2024 is 6.1 million with a 20% target ROI. So in summary, we're in the early innings of our growth trajectory, and our focus is to continue taking market share in casual dining. We will continue to cluster our restaurants so we can leverage supervision, supply chain, and brand awareness. We have a robust, large, active real estate pipeline and a proven site selection team with best-in-class predictive tools to minimize risk. We have a broad menu and a concept that has proven to be successful in many diverse trade areas in all parts of the country. We are well on our way to accomplish our growth goals well into the future. Thanks a lot. And uh, with that, I will uh, bring up 
Tom Hodick, or welcome Tom Hodick, and uh, he's our CFO, as you guys know, and uh, he'll bring us home. All right. Thank you, Greg, and good morning to um, everyone here with us in person, as well as joining us virtually. As Greg said, I'm Tom Hodek. I'm the Chief Financial Officer of BJ's. In the coming slides, I'll discuss our longer-term growth algorithm, as well as um, our financial outlook, taking into account both um, the current momentum in our business, um, as well as the, the growth we have planned across the business, which my colleagues have just outlined. To start, let's set a foundation from where we are in 2023. First, BJ's has continued to be a market share leader. Year to date, our comp sales is 180 basis points higher than the industry as measured by black box, driven mainly by traffic gains. This continuation of the trend that Greg outlined at the start shows our consistency delivering above average comp sales growth. Second, after a strong two year run, inflation moderated this year. Cost of sales will be up about 2% year over year. Hourly inflation will be about 4 to 5% up, which both compare very favorably to the last two years when these were up in the high single digits for each year. We did increase our menu prices this year to help mitigate past and, and uh, current inflation. We've now taken about 19% of pricing since the start of 2020, which is less than many of our peers and about 400 basis points less than the Food Away From Home Index over that period, which we believe helped us sustain traffic and take market share. Next, a key area of focus for this year was, and continues to be, improving our margins. We have made material gains this year and continue to make progress through two key drivers, sales leverage and cost savings. You just heard from our leadership team about the framework and details of our strategy to continue to deliver above industry sales growth. And higher sales drive higher margins as we leverage increased sales across the fixed elements of our costs. On cost savings, over the past year, we have worked collaboratively as a team to find meaningful cost savings across our business, which played a big role in improving our margins, which I'll cover more in detail shortly. And number four, we're very pleased with the investments that we've made recently. As you just heard from Greg Lins, our investments in building new restaurants and remodeling restaurants are delivering strong returns, while also keeping our assets up to date and doubling down on what matters most to our guests and what drives traffic to our restaurants. We also started to repurchase sh shares again in the third quarter, demonstrating our confidence in the growth plans outlined today, which we believe will generate considerable shareholder value. Now let's discuss the margin trends in more detail. Rewinding to 2019, our restaurant-level margins were 16%. Take note of how it fluctuates through the year. It's highest in the first half of the year when sales are seasonally highest, it dips in the third quarter with our seasonal pattern, and then it ends the year with Q4 margins at the same level for, as full-year margins. You can see Q4 margins serve as a good proxy for, for the full-year results. Switching to 2023, we've made great progress closing the gap to 2019 margins. We were within 160 basis points of our pre-COVID margins in the third quarter, which was con a considerable improvement from where we started the year. We are encouraged by the progress 
and we plan to continue closing the gap and bringing our margins back in line with historical levels. By building sales, as you heard throughout our presentations today, and continuing to be creative and maniacal about finding and realizing additional cost savings. Our margin improvement initiative played a big role in the margin recovery story. We launched the program in the middle of 2022 with the target of realizing at least 25 million of cost savings through our restaurant P&L. We met as a cross-functional team weekly at the highest levels of our organization to drill down in all aspects of our restaurant costs. We tasked teams with finding meaningful and creative ways to save while not impacting the guest experience. As an example, we updated our chicken wings, as Putnam highlighted. We still serve a premium jumbo wing, but now we start with a raw product instead of a pre-cooked product, and then by putting them in our slow roast ovens to cook, which keeps them juicy and tender, and then flash frying when ordered. Everyone in the room had the chance to try our wings last night, and I think they'd agree with me in saying there's not a better wing out there. Another example is optimizing our labor schedules. When we reduced our menu in June to simplify our operations, we were able to remove 20 prep hours per week per restaurant, which Chris outlined. As for the benefits, these examples I just gave added 20 basis points to our margins each. We met our original $25 million goal within a year, crossing that threshold in the second quarter. Then we announced another 5 million of savings, getting to 30 million in the third quarter. Given what we are in the process of implementing, we expect to achieve an additional $5 million in the third quarter, uh, fourth quarter, taking us to the $35 million. We continue to identify new areas to save and expect to continue to add more savings in 2024. All right, shifting to a longer-term view, here is our long-term growth algorithm. We have a comprehensive strategy to grow sales. You heard Greg Levin outline today the strategy at the start of the day and each presenter provided details on the initiatives, aiming to continue to outpace the industry in traffic and comp sales growth with strategies to grow BJ's core and win within culinary and menu innovation, gracious hospitality, greater awareness, restaurant ambiance, and growth overlays. With our strategies in place, along with pricing to offset ongoing inflation, we believe we can consistently increase our comp sales by low single digits to mid single digits annually. Also, we intend to grow sales by accelerating restaurant openings. Our target is to add at least 5% to our restaurant base each year. At 217 restaurants today, that would mean more than 10 restaurant openings per year. We are confident that we can open that number of restaurants with both top tier sites and best in class restaurant management teams. We are now building both our real estate and talent pipelines in preparation for more restaurant openings. As a reminder, in the decade between 2010 and 2020, we opened more than 10 restaurants per year on average, so we know what it takes to open restaurants at this pace and great restaurants. Next, we plan to continue improving our restaurant margins, as I just discussed. We show 2019 margins of 16% as a starting point, but there's no reason to stop there. Hence the plus. And we intend, to, we intend to continue building margins the right way, first by building sales with our strategies outlined today and driving, sales, uh, driving the greater sales leverages through our P&L. Also, we will find more efficiencies to cut waste and cost and continue to adjust our menu prices to offset inflation. Finally, we intend to return capital to our shareholders. Add it all up, and our EBITDA and EPS would consistently grow in the low to mid-teens each year. 
It is worth noting we expect an even higher level of earnings growth in the next couple of years as our results will benefit from our recent and ongoing margin improvement progress. So where are we today and when do we expect our business to be on the trajectory laid out in a long-term growth algorithm? In terms of comp sales, we had a solid recovery through this year and we expect to continue to build sales into 2024 and beyond with the strategies outlined today throughout the presentation. In terms of new restaurants, we opened five restaurants this year and expect to open a similar number next year before reaching the 5% restaurant growth by 2025. A note on 2024 restaurant openings, which the changing of the building plans to achieve the cost savings that Greg Lins outlined pushed back some construction start dates. We shifted some of our original openings that would have been slated for 2024 into 2025. As for margins, as I just discussed, we have momentum in building our restaurant-level cash flow margins and plan to continue improving margins in the near term. In terms of returning capital, we restarted our share repurchase program in the third quarter, which we intend to continue going forward at a regular pace as part of our capital allocation strategy. Now let's move from the structure of our growth plan into what it means regard, regarding to actual targets. So what level of sales can be generated with our growth algorithm? For a starting point, based on current consensus estimates, our 2023 sales should come in, come in right around 1.34 billion. Next, we modeled our three-year expectations with a bottoms-up build, including restaurant openings, reflecting our development pipeline and reaching 5% restaurant growth by 2025, and comp sales growth in the low to mid-single digits. The result is sales of 1.6 billion to 1.65 billion by 2026. That equates to around 20% of growth or more within three years, with about half coming from comp sales and half coming from new restaurants. The contribution from new restaurants is expected to increase in 2025 and 2026 as new restaurant growth ramps up. Turning to EBITDA. For a starting point, based on current consensus estimates, 2023 adjusted EBITDA is approximately 105 million. Next, we show the EBITDA band of 120 to 125 million based on restaurant level cash flow margins in a range around a 14.5% exit rate, which is consistent with our guidance last month that we expect Q4 margins in the low 14% as we continue to realize cost savings through the quarter. As a reminder, fourth quarter margins have been a good proxy for full year margins for our business. Then moving to 2026 expectations, we modeled the benefit of sales growth that we expect using the midpoint of the prior slide, then netting out our expected G&A investments. The two scenarios shown are at 15% and 16% restaurant level margins, which equates to 2026 EBITDA in the 150 to $165 million range or growth of more than 40% to nearly 60% from 2023 levels. This year, we expect to invest approximately 95 million in CapEx and repurchase a total of 10 to $15 million of our shares. Looking ahead to 2024, on a preliminary basis, we expect to open about the same number of restaurants at a lower cost, but then also spending later in the year, preparing to ramp up our openings in 2025. Our other investments are expected to remain about flat. In summary, to summarize our expectations for 2024, we will generate more cash from operations and spend the same or less in terms of CapEx, 
allowing us to return more capital to our shareholders. Turning to our balance sheet, our leverage remains very modest at 0.6 times trailing EBITDA, plus we have strong liquidity with only $60 million drawn on our $215 million revolving credit facility at the end of the third quarter. Compared to other public restaurant um, casual dining companies, based on current consensus estimates, BJS has one of the highest expected EBITDA growth rates from 2023 to 2025. That is driven in part by our sales growth potential and margin recovery story that I just outlined. Conversely, our forward valuation multiple is currently on the lower side of the industry, which we believe creates a fantastic opportunity as we execute on our near-term and longer-term growth plans discussed today. As consistent above industry growth and an attractive margin profile tend to be rewarded with higher valuation multiples. All right, returning to where we started the presentations today with our theme, these are the four key steps to unlocking shareholder value as we build momentum and unleash growth. Starting in the upper right of the flywheel, growing sales. A key goal of today was to convey the two sales growth drivers. First, comp sales growth, through the breadth of activities related to building guest traffic and check, while taking market share from the competition. Second, new restaurant growth, through accelerating our openings to at least 5% by 2025, delivering solid financial returns. These together will meaningfully increase BJ's scale by about 20% or more within three years. Next on the flywheel is expanding margins. Strong margins are critical for profitable growth. We have a dual mandate of delivering margin expansion through sales leverage and cost savings. We will continue to be ruthless in eliminating efficiencies and costs with a high degree of creativity. Plus, higher margins unlock additional new restaurant growth opportunities that meet our financial return requirements. Next is increasing EBITDA. The first two steps, growing sales and expanding margins, work as multipliers to generate higher dollar profit from our restaurants. Adding extra profit from our restaurants leverage more, leverages more fixed elements of G&A, which boosts EBITDA growth. We expect to increase EBITDA by more than 40% to nearly 60% over the next three years. Higher EBITDA and the flow through to operating cash flow unlocks opportunities to accelerate growth through reinvestment, which takes us to the final quadrant, reinvesting back into our business. Investments in rest new restaurants and remodels have delivered strong returns, and we expect to improve our new restaurant economics by growing sales, improving margins, and lowering the investment cost. We plan to continue investing in our growth as well as ways to enhance our brand and what matters most to our guests as an elevated ambience drives repeat visits and stronger guest traffic. Then excess cash flow will be returned to our shareholders. And that, in summary, is our plan that you can expect us to execute against. Thank you, and we will now move to the Q&A session. Give us a moment to arrange seating, and we'll be on stage momentarily. Thank you.
working? Yep. We ready to go? All right, so Rich, you're going to, oh, okay. We're good? Yep. All right, let's go ahead and uh, we're going to handle remote, uh, handle remote. So you used to be at home, right? On the remote. My wife would be like, that's all you do, hold the remote. Um, we'll uh, hand the microphone out so we can catch it on the, on the webcast as well. Hey, thanks for taking the question. Um, for Greg Williams, two, two questions. One on the remodel side, I think you're going to touch about 20% of the store base this year. I think the early estimates were 15% of the store base next year. What, what status does that leave the fleet in? How much more is there that needs to be remodeled over time to get those existing fleet the way that you want? And then on new store development, you've talked about more of a clustering approach within some of the newer markets. What type of density do you, do you really need in markets to start to see the efficiency um, from field level supervision and staffing uh, start to grow for, um, as, you're, as you're filling in those markets now? Thanks. Right. So I'll take, tackle the first one on the remodels. So you know, when we look at remodels, we look at the age of the restaurants coming number one. We look at also the sale generation, how it's performing. And then we look at the lease to make sure, you know, we don't have an issue with our lease. Or, and we also talk to landlords about, you know, contributing for the, for the remodels. So, you know, we hit 36 this year. And, you know, we're going through our planning right now, so we don't know the exact number we're going to, you know, uh, focus on next year. But probably somewhere in that same range that we did this year. And then we'll look at, I don't know, I'm not sure the exact number that will be, uh, uh, you know, uh, that we'll still have to, have to remodel, but there's still a fair amount, so we can definitely hit them and we can continually upgrade them. Um, so the short answer is I don't have the exact number for you of what we have to, you know, how many we're going to do over the next three years. We're planning that right now. But restaurants that are eight, nine, ten years old for us, may or may not need a remodel. So if we looked at our base, you know, pre, uh, that were built between, say, 2003 and 2012, 13, those are the ones that we're going to be remodeling the first. And then uh, on the new, uh, the cluster, so as kind of I mentioned, our, our strategy is where we can leverage supply chain, where we can leverage brand supervision or uh, supervision and brand awareness those are the three things that we're trying to to uh, leverage as we, as we get into a market so we love markets like you know the Detroit Michigan area right we can go in and we've got you know four or five restaurants and we can go to Lansing we can go to Kalamazoo we can grow for there that we gain leverage in a market like that right away and uh, that's our, our focus is to continue developing kind of the Florida market all the way to mid-Atlantic, up into the northeast, and then continue to build out kind of Michigan. You know, we still have plenty of growth in Texas, uh, California, and Arizona. Todd, just to add on to that, a couple things. One is we have about 70 restaurants where we could actually expand capacity. 
that have the um, the service area that's no longer being used. Whether we'll do all 70 or not, we'll see. Uh, the other side of it is, as we talked today, when we started building what Greg Lynn's called the Proto 7 that we did for a few years there, that doesn't have the 130-inch TV. So even though it's a newer restaurant, it's actually got a lighter wood bar, but it would probably make sense to go into a few of those and actually add the 130 and adjust that bar statement. So we probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of over 100, probably in the 125 plus restaurants that we would maybe want to remodel over time. Uh, it depends on how we want to lay that out. I think after we get through this year, you'll see that capital go down um, just because we've really hit the big, bigger restaurants, the big booming restaurants and the bigger restaurants, but also the restaurants that are a little bit more aged. The other side of that to your question as well, we want to get to somewhere as close to three restaurants from a minimum clustering. Um, one of the things that's unique to BJ's, frankly, is we have to deliver beer into those restaurants. So when we get more restaurants in there, we get less what we call LTLs when we're sending beer out there. That reduces that beer cost for the most. Because we're with um, a national dis distributor, it's not as big a deal, per se, on just tra traditional food and beverage. But the beer helps come down. And then, you know, Chris would talk to this as well. Then you start to really get the supervision that really helps in an area where you can put a director in that area, build out, leverage that where the director is not flying in and save costs. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Bernstein from Barclays. Uh, two questions as well. The first one just seems like the investment community is always focused on comps above all else. Um, I know your guidance is for low to mid single digit starting next year. It just seems like it's a very difficult hurdle. I mean, I look back for casual dining, it's been you know, 15 years of negative traffic. Uh, and I think you said you're running 17, 18% price since 2020. So I'm just wondering, how do you think about the drivers of that comp um, you know, over the next number of years? I mean, looking back to BJ's itself, it seems like it's been probably 10 plus years, taking out the COVID years, where you were able to consistently, you know, on a multi-year basis, achieve that level. So I just want to make sure, in terms of your confidence in setting that bar to low to mid-single digits starting in 2024, that that's something you think you can uh, achieve. And then I had one follow-up. Yeah, good, good question, Jeff. So I think when you look at that, in where we would like to be and think about the amount of traffic that we drive into our restaurants today, the what I would call the minimum setup there would be flattish traffic, and then you gain from, from mix. We talked about the wow and the culinary strategy and then you have some pricing. That's kind of the minimum bar that we would set for ourselves. Ultimately, we want to continue to drive traffic into our restaurants and focus in on maybe some of the day parts that we win. How do we continue to win on late night that we play in there? As the guest continues to come out and look at us more from the social dining, how do we continue to improve on that dinner uh, aspect of it? Um, when you, overall, when you think about casual dining, that lunch has been probably a bigger challenged area, and I think it's you know fast casual QSR that's come in and frankly, given a quality product at a more convenient um, experience, so to speak. So we know, and I think Chris showed that, that um, on, on the speed side of it, we're not going to be a convenient play. We're going to be more experiential, social play. But there's still ways that we can tap into that, creating on the culinary side that give it a little bit different, and then start to look into that mid-afternoon, dinner, and late night, and really target that and be more targeted in that area. So that's, that's how we go after it. And what's the macro assumption? I know a lot of people want to talk about the slowing macro. So as we think about 2024 at least, what's your built-in assumption for the, for the macro environment uh, from a consumer perspective? 
Yeah, our, our uh, assumption is really a more normalized macro environment. So we're not putting in here thinking that we're going to go into recession. I don't think you can necessarily build a business for the future going there's going to be a recession. Um, I think you have to take the assumption that consumers are going to come up and how do we become uh, and maintain the wide moats in our business? How do we become that you know uh, competitive uh, alternative uh, compared to our others? So people want to come to us and we have that guest desirability. And that's where we're investing in. It's really about that differentiation. And as difficult as it is, and, and I get this from the investment community, reinvesting back into the business is not something people want to hear out here. They just don't want to hear it. And that's where you lose your relevancy, you lose your quality, you, you lose your differentiation. And you do over time go, why am I struggling with comp, negative comp sales every year? Um, you've got to take that, that, that little bit of that belief in the strategy that we're doing, or we have that belief in that strategy, that you invest back in to make it a more desirable experience for somebody going, hey, you know what, I'm going to go to BJ's and I'm going to wait that 20 minutes. One of the, one of the things that came out of our guest research and us talking around, talking uh, through it is we always want to be faster, right? We want to get to the point in a restaurant like in a hotel where you say to yourself, I don't have to check out anymore. I can walk out the door. That's a convenience for the guest. We've got to think about our business that way. Where do we, how do we make it more convenient? Maybe there's a way that guests can just leave. You pay at the table, we can do that with our mobile app, et cetera. But maybe it's just you tap your phone and you get a leave. So you add that convenience that speeds it up. But we're not going to become a restaurant that says you can have a 20-minute dining experience at BJ's and go. We want to offer that. But ultimately, we want guests to go, you know what? It's a 40-minute wait, and I'm going to wait at BJ's because it's so damn good that I'm going to wait. And I'll follow up there shortly uh, just to add to what Greg said, too. When we think about our, um, our value strategy and pricing strategy, it really is th looking through um, the cycle, thinking about how do you maintain strong dollar value if you think of our daily specials, happy hour, our lunch value. Um, so if, um, you know, irrespective of the backdrop, if somebody wants to come in for that, that strong dollar price point, we have it. And even when we go through menu pricing, we look at more of known value items that will signal value. And um, there's areas in our menu we can lean into a little bit more in terms of these, these decadent, more unique type of brew house fabulous offerings. So that's a, another piece of it, too, to make sure that, you know, in any type of economic backdrop, we're going to have reasons to, for people to come into BJ's and, and come in for a great value. And my follow-up, I'm just curious the from the management's perspective and your board and your larger shareholders, if you were to take, take a step back, I know you seem to be encouraged by the opportunity to reaccelerate the unit growth, um, being that you're halfway to maybe your destination or less than halfway. How do you balance that with the idea of maybe, you've said recently, maybe we don't do as much unit growth, which you've said always in recent years, quality over quantity. So maybe versus doing very little unit growth, getting those margins back up, become more of a cash flow generating story and more of a return of cash story. Like how do you balance those two? Because I know it's, to deliver both at the same time, and it seems like you've gotten into a groove of less unit growth of late and more about the margins and the cash return stories. So I'm just wondering how, as a management team, you think about that. Thank you. Yeah. So um, on that initial slide that I showed with the three key messages, we don't get to number three, which was accelerating restaurant growth, if we don't do number one and two. Plain and simple. We've got to grow comp sales, and we've got to grow margins. That provides the opportunity, the option, to invest back into new restaurants. So that's the way we blind it out and the way we look at it uh, in our business. So coming out of here, we want to get back to that 5%, that long-term growth algorithm. But it's based on generating comp sales and high 
restaurant level margins that free up even more cash flow that give us that opportunity to build new restaurants. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Wolf from CL King. Just want to ask you about your pricing strategy, which you mentioned um, was you passed on less price, uh, less cost inflation, I should say, than some of your peers. And uh, for, judging from your results, it re partially, at least part of that strategy must be the uh, reason for the outperformance in the uh, guest traffic. Uh, how do you measure that in internally, you know, where you should price, uh, beat others on price to drive traffic? Are you satisfied with sort of the guest elasticity or however you think about that? And what does that mean for the future pricing? Yeah, I'll touch on that. Tom will probably add to it. And Tom alluded to it a little bit, and that is, uh, and even Putnam did uh, during his uh, strategy session around the culinary. We want to have and maintain this good, better, best pricing. Um, at the end of the day, there are certain items that we call them KVIs, known value items. And on known value items, you've got to be very competitive. We can't have just a cheeseburger on our menu starting at $18. Even if we said it's a half pound and look at the price per pound better than somebody else's, there was a, a restaurant concept that I won't name, it's uh, no longer public, that had a pound burger. And their comment to the investment community was, look, per pound, it's a great price. Well, still, somebody looks at it and says, wow, I'm paying X for that burger. So we've got to continue to have this good, better, best. So today we have like our smokehouse burger. Um, it's one of our lower-priced burgers because, believe it or not, onion straws cost less than cheese. Um, and barbecue sauce costs less than putting the, the tomato on there. So it's actually a really great burger, but it's our entry-level burger that's actually differentiated, but it's in our good strategy and our good, better, best. Then, as, uh, as you saw last night, and Putnam went through the culinary strategy, we want to have those wow items that allow people to, to um, buy up. And I think what you see in the BJ's restaurant is we have so many different day parts and reasons to come to us. The person that's celebrating and socializing and is using us as the entertainment for the week or the escape, they will spend up on that. And that's where we want to go with that and have that differentiation. Now, from a more practical standpoint, Whenever we take pricing, you start to look at the elasticity of it. Did certain things move from one to the other? Did we move it in the right way? And we tend to look at that individually at certain items to see how their relevancy, let's call it, or in our case, we call it the incidents per 100, or as every 100 guests comes in, how many do they, uh, do they order that pre and post and menu pricing? So we'll continue to look at that and look at different areas to adjust. Um, lately, coming out of COVID, it was pretty inelastic. I know there's been a lot of concerns around where the consumer is right now. We've mentioned that we've seen you know, alcoholic beverages slow down versus last year when I think there was this really big, I've heard the term, you know, revenge eating, revenge dining going on. But when we look at it versus 2019, we still see those incident rates higher. We also, from an elasticity standpoint, we'll look at our daily brew house specials. We'll look at happy hour. We'll look at other areas that people tend to use our menu to try and manage a check. We haven't quite seen that yet, but we'll continue to you know, evaluate both that from a guest standpoint and then every time we take menu pricing where things may or may not drop off from elasticity of demand. Yeah, so just exactly what Greg said. After we take the pricing round, what you see immediately is any shifts in the menu. So what, what's ordered when a guest is sitting in front of that menu? Um, you know, what, if you 
look at appetizers, especially the, the attachment rates of things like appetizers and pizookis. If they're managing check, you might see a little bit less of that ordered. So that's what we measure immediately after. And to Greg's point, we haven't seen uh, any shifts there. You also look at what's getting used. And if people are trading from a steak to a burger, um, same incidence rates, but low, lower check. And to the same point, we haven't seen any shift in that mix. Um, we also look more on a longer, you have to wait a little bit longer to see if there's any traffic um, impact. We can check our restaurants versus black box to see if there's been any, any deceleration. So that's, that's in general how we, we track the, the, you know, the success of a pricing round to see the flow through there. But the, the other end of the equation, too, it, at these pricing levels for, for us in the industry, it just gets back to the importance of everything else we're doing. The, the food has to be great. The service has to be amazing. The, the ambiance has to be there. They're, the guests are paying more than ever, and maybe they have less um, visits to go out. So when they come to BJ's, we want to make sure that it is that level of, of the total experience that, that they feel like it, it was just a fantastic um, experience, even for these, these higher prices. Um, separate question, but more pointed, hopefully, for the other Greg. Um, I just did the math. It looks like you're looking for AUV about 3% higher in 2024 from the new stores. Yeah, that's about right. Um, could you just discuss what, what's embedded in that? Well, I, I think a lot of it is is just the fact that we've been, we've operated this, this prototype for, for quite a while. I think the first one we built was in 2020, 2015, so we can look at our past performance of that. But I, I actually think we're, are, we're, we're, I don't know if that 3% is right. I think it's about the same. So we're projecting about $7 million, right, for, for the part of 2024 that we're building, the new one, which is about what we're, our new restaurants are generating, so it's about the same. I don't know, Greg, if you wanted to. That's fine. Guys, I'm trying to understand, you know, why are we opening sort of units at all at this point? I know we're talking about these these 17% restaurant level cash flow margins. I mean, the blended average for the company is really like 13. So if your new ones are doing this well, imply you could probably got a lot doing 10 or 11. Um, you know, I think about margin expansion as you called out. You know, if you get a hundred basis points of margin expansion, it's you know 14 million dollars roughly of, of EBIT. And that's just, there's no capital involved. It's just execution to get there. You know, to get $14 million of EBIT on, the, on these new units, you've got you to open 11 of them. That costs you like $65, $70 million. You've got to spend like 10% of your market cap to get the same EBIT you get from 100 bips of margin. So why? It, it, look, I'm all excited about the margin and driving that over time. But, you know, in, in light of the fact that, you know, the margins are depressed from historical norms, I mean, why don't, why don't we take a complete hi hiatus and, instead of just kind of continuing to deploy capital uh, in light of the kind of profitability slide we've had over the last few years? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a fair and, and uh, balanced question from that standpoint. And I think we look at it under that kind of a dual mandate that we'll get those numbers up, and that's part of that, that plan there. And as we have the ability to add new restaurants, that generates significant EBITDA as well. That gives us a little bit more of a forward and future valuation coming into the company. But as you mentioned, as we continue to, to look at that, it's based on getting sales and getting EBITDA up and having that optionality because if our new restaurants can continue to do what they're doing, you get the existing restaurants up from a margin standpoint. It does become a growth multiplier. So from an investor standpoint, it ends up increasing the overall value of the company. 
Uh, but it's got to be done thoughtfully. It's, you know, we have never been a company that gets out there and says, we're going to grow 20% a year no matter what and see margins going this way or going a different way and continuing to open it. We've probably been one of the only companies early on that basically said, hey, we're pulling back on different things to do it the right way. And we'll continue to have that balanced approach. We, we believe, sitting here today, what we're putting together is going to allow us to do that first on that one and two, grow sales, drive margins up. That, as I said before, gives that optionality. And really, we're thinking about it from a three-year strategic plan. I think if you looked at it and said, for a year plan, totally understand where you're getting at. First, I wanted to say excellent presentation. Uh, very happy that you chose to do an investor day. So thank you for that. Um, I guess follow-up questions on, on, on Jeff and, um, and, and Frank. Um, I guess first, uh, just could you drill down a little bit more on the CapEx? So this slide you say for 2024, um, you know, this year about $95 million and you have up there flat to lower. And let's assume you, you open up five restaurants at $6 million a pop, and you do another 36 remodels, and, and you put up an average of like 342000 blah, blah, blah. That's, you, you know, you gets you $40, 50000000 million. There's maintenance. Um, but I have a hard time getting to 95. So I'd like to think that it will be lower than 95, but I wondering if you can be a little bit more granular. And obviously that would lead to additional free cash flow, which we could use to do what you, you know is my favorite activity at the share price is a share buyback, a, a larger share buyback, I should say. Yeah. Uh, I think what sometimes gets missed is as we grow our restaurants, we're going to have a certain amount of CapEx for new restaurants for 2025. And they don't, we don't pull that trigger until later in the year. So, again, it provides a little bit of that optionality. As I was saying, we need to do one and two, first and foremost. Right? And when we do one and two, that allows us to continue to pull that lever for the second part. So we start to think about where that CapEx is. There's a little bit of, yes, less in the sense of each restaurant's a million to build less. But if we think that we're doing five and we're in a good position to go to nine or ten next year, there's going to be a certain amount of that CapEx going into next year. So that's an additional part of it uh, that plays in there. And then we're still kind of going through the remodel CapEx right now and where that will come down. Ultimately, our goal is to have that lower. I mean, I think when you look at that number for this year, we want to get that number lower, and we're being pretty uh, judicious on it when we sit around and talk about what's the right restaurant to remodel and so forth on there, and what are some of the other uh, initiative plans that make sense for us that allow the guests to have a better dining experience or are important for us for maintaining relevancy. Great. I guess just you know one other comment, and just really adding on uh, Frank and Jeff. You know, as you just do the math, you know, new restaurant approximately six million, where your stock is trading, it's valuing each of your restaurants at approximately three million. So you got a, a nice arbitrage here to obviously lean in more towards obviously the remodeling. Absolutely agree. You got to keep reinvesting in your new business. And I may be a little bit different than Frank. I do think you should open some new restaurants. I think. You have to grow. You have to show that you are a viable concept. So don't want you to completely stop growing, but I think remain highly disciplined and focus mostly, I think, long-term investors, free cash flow. Free cash flow, at the end of the day, is everything, even more so than positive comp sales. Even though we obviously want that, the cash flow is king. 
Thanks. I, I'm not sure there was a question in there, Doug, but, but um, we do, uh, like I said, we take this balanced approach. The strategy that we lined up, the one, two, three, and, um, you know, grow sales and dust in the margins or improve the margins and uh, accelerate new restaurant growth. We don't get to three without one and two, which throws off more cash flow um, and ultimately allows us to make those decisions as to use those, uh, as how we want to use our cash flow. Thanks. Uh, Mike Tamis at Oppenheimer. You know, Tom, you put up run rate 14.5% margins exiting this year, going to 16% plus as we get to 26. You know, besides growing sales, what are the building blocks to getting there? You know, you talked about lagging inflation by, I think, about 400 basis points on your menu pricing. You obviously have cost savings. That makes up about half of that so far. So what are the other missing pieces that kind of bridge us from 14.5 to, say, 16% plus? And just one follow-up after that. Thanks. Sure. So the the fourteen and a half being the um, you know still the the approximate exit rate is we think of the next um, you know we showed this over the the three year window um, it, it really is everything it is sales leverage that that comes from what what we outlined it is more cost savings that that fourteen and a half percent has all the savings that we're we will expect to to realize this year but there's still more things that are being vetted. Um, ideas brought in, things that we're, we're working through the system. So it, the, you know, this was a great initiative to really get the whole organization thinking about ways to bring down costs and, and in a creative way. There's still some areas of our business that we know there's more opportunities in. So this is the, um, the piece outside of just pricing that, that lets us keep the value and, and fix and you know, uh, remove efficiencies in the system. Um, Chris outlined these, these great savings or these great wins we're finding with AI to, to find ways to, to increase efficiencies there. We haven't seen all that flow through yet to the, the, to the P&L to see the, the schedules all, all adjust. And when we keep finding ways to make it more granular and, and find ways to bring that out to um, you know, doing more in the restaurants, there, there's a benefit there too. So it really is um, the, the dual mandate of it. It has to be on the sales line, but it also has to come from the cost side. We're, we're not saying we're doing this with extra pricing. I think we did the right thing by taking less price and uh, you know, looking at where we, we sit. We like our competitive position. Um, so I wouldn't say that we're, we're saying we're going to lean any more into pricing. Um, we will take our fair share to, to maintain, but um, it really is the, the top line and, and cutting costs. Yeah, real, real quick to that, we've got, I mean, we will continue to uh, find other ways. It's, it's a, you know, an ongoing journey that frankly just never ends uh, in that regard. And putting the team together this year and working through that has been really impactful. Um, the area that's been the stickiest for us, and you see it on the P&L, frankly, has been operating occupancy costs. Some of that's a change in the business to third-party delivery and that aspect of the business that we didn't have X amount of years ago. But the other side of it is coming out of COVID, janitors cost more, electricians cost more, plumbers cost more. All of those things have kind of played in there. So what we're doing, and, and we started here in the fourth quarter, and that's, I think, a little bit to Tom's point about the exit rate and where we're going, is we're really starting to drill down into the operating occupancy. Some of it, frankly, is how can we use AI in that? We have all of our facilities people, when they come and do something, they take notes. Think about like going to the doctor and they're writing all the notes down. Well, in the past, you would still you would just generally get an invoice, and you put the invoice in, say, plumbing. You maybe have some notes there. We actually put our AI tool and read all those notes. And when you start to read all those notes, if you, for those that have played around with AI, it can be really powerful because you keep drilling into it and drilling into it, and you start to realize, is there something that's systemically wrong with either maybe the way you built restaurants, 
maybe we end up, and we were talking about this the other day, we have traps on, on our drains that, that are screws, and we want to clean those drains because it eliminates fruit flies and everything to keep facilities clean. Well, guess what? Team members take the screws off. They take the grate off. They don't want to put that back on. That's extra time. Well, why can't we put a clip on that goes on and off? Like, you start to realize those things through your business. They're actually simple, but they're very powerful, and they get missed. So we're going after those little things like that that over time will help us in that area. But that's been the stickiest one for us. You know, labor is pretty much back to where it is. In fact, from productivity, it's even better, and we'll continue to work that as we work the menu, and Chris and Putnam work at different ways to operationalize that. Um, cost of sales have normalized some of its pricing. Some of it's we've gotten better at the way we've done smart sourcing, frankly. It's going after that operating occupancy cost is that next lever that is of high demand for us. And then um, on the unit growth, you know, you're targeting going to 5% plus starting in 25. You know, what's going to give you the green light to actually do that versus what might hold you back from, you know, accelerating from, say, five units to 10 units? So there's two things. One is, first and foremost, the governor to all growth is people. Right? Plain and simple, I think we're building a, a bench strength, but when we look at really good restaurants, or I would say great restaurants, a better way of saying it, it, it's because of that management team. It's the culture within that restaurant that comes from the general manager and the executive kitchen manager working together. So we've got to continue to cultivate that, those people and train those people differently. Chris and, and our chief people officer, Amy Crawman, that we brought on earlier this year, they're working through to teach more leadership skills. Generally in the restaurant, to become a general manager in the past, it's because you're really good at your trait. You're a really good line cook. You know, you're really good in the front of the room looking at schedules. And we have to start teaching them how to be leaders. And leadership is very different than going, wow, that person's great on the line. Once you're at EKM, you're not on the line. You're needing to teach the people to be on that. So there's a subtle movement that we're going through there, looking for the right quality of individuals that can actually lead people versus being the best person as a line cook or someone in the dining room. That's the first and foremost. Now, to you out there, that's not sexy. You want to hear about a financial quantitative number for it. I get that. It's ultimately what we talked about earlier today, and that is we need to see one and two coming in the right direction and that we're making that progress. One of the things that Greg Lenz has always done um, is he gives us optionality in our leases. We are, um, I, you know, I hate saying this over the webcast because other people will probably look for it, but we have this optionality, even though we sign leases, that gives us a certain amount of time to get out of leases. We can go in there and say, look, the feasibility didn't come. Don't really have to say why. Might be a, a, a permitting issue, other things that come in that allow us to walk through it. So we line up that optionality in our leases, kind of like lining up all the planes to land. And if they don't make sense, we redirect it or we, or we cancel it. Um, but really, we've got to continue to move down that path of one and two to move us into number three. Okay, Rich. Thank you. Uh, Nick Satyan, Wet Bush. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the questions around free cash flow and, and share buybacks are really coming from the fact that you know, it's very difficult to have very short-term visibility in this environment, let alone, you know, look out to 2025, 2026. Uh, and so, you know, when I kind of look at you guys and when I look at the presentation, I see, you know, 14.5% margin 
exit rate in Q4, I think there's a lot of investors that would, uh, you know, love that type of unit level margin exit rate in Q4, but we're still not sure how much visibility there is into that 14.5% exit rate at a Q4, right? And what that kind of comp that implies. Just given what happened in Q3, given the fact that you had to say low single digit comp in Q4 as opposed to a, you know, actual number, which you've done in the past, you've always talked about a number in terms of guidance instead of a range. And now, you know, we're talking about sort of low to mid, low single digit, mid single digit comps for multiple years, right? And so, uh, maybe the first thing to do is to address, you know, how confident you are in terms of your Q4 expectations and if there's any update there. And, you know, maybe put some numbers around 2024. I think that would be very helpful if you could. No, it's, um, it's a good question, uh, Nick. Q4, much like I would say Q2, is made during the holiday season and how the holiday season plays through. The initiatives that we're putting in place continue to drive margins in the right direction. Even in Q3, as we saw the choppiness coming out of July and October, the margin improvement year over year put us in the right direction of things we're doing. And we continue to see that with, with the way we're seeing operations efficiency here in, in Q4. But ultimately, it doesn't kick in until really the last three to four weeks of Q4. So right now we're on plan with where we think we're going to be, and we'll see where the next, I guess, next month and a half play out from that perspective. But within the four walls that we can control, we're doing a really good job in, in, in regards to that. Um, as far as 2024 goes, we're putting together our plan right now. We presented to our board in, in early December based on, you know, all the things from a bottom-up perspective. We did some of that obviously coming into, into today's presentation. But we like the plan that we're out there and that, and that we put out there and where we want to go. Uh, as I said, I think the prime costs in our business are pretty much back in line with cost of sales and uh, labor. Could they be better? Absolutely, they could be a little bit better, but they're going in the right direction. We've got to tackle this operating occupancy side of it, and I think we've got some good initiatives against that to continue moving that in the right direction to bring that margin up. But ultimately, it does, to you, a little bit to your point, you kind of alluded to it, you have to continue driving comp sales. You do in, in this business. You, um, there's always going to be inflationary pressure, whether it's just a 2 or 3% increase in wages here or there, supply wants to increase, et cetera. You need to be able to drive that comp sales and leverage the fixed cost of the business. And that's why our plan has to be really on the core, has to be a two-fold plan. Got to drive sales, and then we got to be ruthless, uh, as Tom mentioned, in regards to the margin aspect. Thank you. That was the important question. There's there's a couple more questions around just some, some data points that I'd like to know. What's the alcohol mix now, the value mix now, and then the pizza mix now? I'll do my best. I don't know if I know them all off the top of my head. Alcohol is somewhere in the 17 to 18% range. Um, and, and it used to be in the 2021, but that was pre-COVID when we were doing 10,000 off-premise. So in the dining room, I've got to imagine it's higher. I don't know the exact number. We started having to look at our business that way, how it plays out. Um, the incident rates is higher than it was in 19, so I've got to imagine it's still up there. Uh, pizza continues to be around 10 or 11%. It's actually a pretty steady number for us uh, on there, and I do think we've got an opportunity to enhance pizza. And I know for those that have followed BJ's for a long time, 
they always come back to this, this pizza root, the pizza roots. And it's important because it's a differentiator for us. But we're also not going to do six plus million to seven million AUVs as a pizza concept. Even when I joined in 2005, it was how do we add these other really unique, differentiated, indulgent item, items to kind of create uh, experiences for guests for all different types of occasion. So it's a little bit between those two, but there's an opportunity, and we don't talk about it enough, to go after pizza and figure out how we want to reposition pizza. It's a shareable item, so it's a social item, which is great. Um, and it hasn't been as emphasized, I think, over the last couple of years as to where we want to go with it. It's actually something we're currently working in the test kitchen and thinking about how we want to change that up, both from a, maybe a presentation to our guests and how we want to romance it a little bit differently. By the way, to that point, we spent a lot of time talking about the Pazuki and everything we do on the Pazuki. And it's, I mean, we have people on, um, on $5 Pazuki Tuesday, we have tailgates outside our restaurants where all the teenagers come into high school and they eat it in the parking lot tailgating. It's like it's a social phenomenon in a lot of our restaurants. But guess what? It still doesn't have the awareness outside of California or some of our western states that it does in California. So that's a, a brand differentiator for us that we need to lean into. And it's something um, that, you know, Heidi talked about in regards to how do we continue making Pazuki a household name. That's our local marketing domination. Let's go after that aspect with younger kids on Pazuki Tuesday. So I think there's something in all of those areas that we can continue to lean into that drive our own unique attributes to VJs. Any other questions? Thanks. A quick one for Heidi, if I can, or a couple. I never asked just one. Um, you talked about the north of 9 million of your type of customers that are within a, a 10 mile radius of the existing restaurants. What are your thoughts on why they haven't tried BJ's as of yet, if it, if it matches so well with the demographic that the brand seems to resonate with, and how how do you stimulate that trial? And finally, if we look at uh, density in a geography, is is that opportunity greater in your newer markets, and and part of it is is time and scale to unlock it, or is there something in this 20% bump in the in the marketing spend that allows us to go and drive frequency with, with those customers. Thanks. Yeah, great question. I think it goes back to the unaided awareness slide that I showed today at that 12%, right? So across the board, outside of California, we have an opportunity to gain back our share through awareness. And when we do spend, we see a return, but it's also limited in terms of a certain percentage in the system. So as we talk about, hey, we're going to invest 20% more into the media plan, that gives us longer flight dates, and that gives us more flexibility to go in and choose additional markets. So I'm looking forward to getting back into the game in terms of that connected TV and that digital video because the media consumption is going that way. So someone with our market scale can be much more efficient and effective with how we buy media. So I think that was question one. Um, question two, I, I just I, I kind of want to like talk about local domination for a moment because I think it gets back to, to where you're headed. And that was a lot of kind of the pilot testing that we did this year around new restaurants, 
as well as um, existing restaurants that didn't fall within that digital TV, connected TV market group. So we've got some work to do when it comes to, hey, giving our operators the tools to go out and build relationships within the community. And so that will continue to play a role. We'll have monthly focus opportunities for that as we look to the year ahead. But there's always opportunity for growth. 12% um, is, is not a big number, but again, it kind of goes back to the 9 million where, hey, there's a lot of opportunity here. Hey, this is Tyler Prowse at Stevens. Um, my question was on closures, and it appears the pre-COVID rate was about zero to one a year, and then in 22 is two, and then this year we're looking at, at four. I was going to see if you could talk more about these recent closures and, you know, kind of what, we, what should we expect going forward? Yeah, Tyler, um, look, I think it was, <laughs> choosing my words wisely here, um, BJ's had a, um, a view that we're not going to close restaurants, we're going to operate it, and we're going to make it work, I think, just from a DNA perspective. Not that we never close restaurants, but as I took over, frankly, and got with the team here, there are restaurants that, um, some that, and just a few, by the way, that we've been operating for a while that just didn't make economic sense. And they had opened and were operating long enough to see that they were never going to grow into that where they wanted to make sense. So that played a, um, a path in a couple of them. The other ones, frankly, that we opened this year were the smaller restaurants. So it was in, like, Oregon uh, was one of them. Chandler, Arizona, we relocated back of the mall as trade areas changed. So some of that played into it. I don't think, and we've always said this about BJ's, and I've kind of emphasized it in our presentation, um, we have never been a company that said, we're going to go 20% a year, so let's get out 20 restaurants. And then three years later, go, oh, guess what? We're closing 30 of them, or we're closing 40 of them. We've got high-quality sites. Greg Lins and his team have done a really great job from that perspective. Um, but there are a couple where the trade area has changed, so we, so we made that decision on a couple of them. Going forward, it's, you know, onesies and twosies, so to speak. I would never say there's not going to be any. Some of them leases are coming up. They moved in different areas. If we can relocate them, we will. But we don't have this, hey, we've been around for X years, and we opened 50 of them, and we want to close 30. Um, so one, one or two will go forward. To me, coming out of COVID, we want to see a little bit of the trade area may have changed, and it really didn't for us on those restaurants. Great restaurants pre-COVID are great restaurants today. And as a result, we made the decision to, to close a couple. Most of them, though, were a change in trade area or they were the smaller one, like I said, up in Jansen Beach, Oregon, and so forth. Hey, question for Tom. Um, if I just kind of look at the midpoint of your 2026 revenue guidance, you know, you said 1.6 $1 1 billion, 1.65. I think the midpoint of that, 1.625, and, and we do 16% cash flow margins, that, that implies $260 million of restaurant cash flow. And, you, and on that number, you got it to 165 of EBITDA. So basically, that would imply $95 million of G&A, if I look in the out years. And you're, you're going to do $80 million this year. So it just in light of the lower growth, and we're trying to drive margins higher, you know, it just seems like you know to go from 80 to 95 in three years. It seems like that would be a big S, that would be a big GNA ramp for a company that feels like 80 million is you know it's probably a big number for for corporate overhead. 
Um, I mean, would you anticipate in 2026, you know, G&A growing at, you know, 5 million a year from 23 to 26 and being 95, or can we keep that closer to where we are today? I think the, the base assumptions there were to give enough uh, of, a, of a window to say that this is, um, you know, some type of inflation that'll, that'll happen there to, um, especially to support the growth that's expected. Um, but yeah, if it, you know, it might be something under that too. So um, we don't have it planned out um, by year. We're, we're setting our plan for 2024 right now, and we'll, we'll set, we'll fine tune what the next couple of years looks like after that. But um, you know, as a team, we want to make sure that we're as efficient as as we should be. Um, all of the, you know, there's not excess spending happening at the GNA side. We want to make sure that the extra investment that happens on GNA is truly that, that it, it drives growth. So it's, it's a number that we've used for the, for the walk and for the assumptions. But um, if there's ways to save and not spend that much, we, we will certainly do that. Yeah, I, I think the other side of that one, Frank, also comes down, we talked about this before, that GNA always is in those, these three buckets. It's, you know, us sitting up here, and we should always get leverage out of that. Um, then you got the field operations side of it, and that's going to grow as we add restaurants. Uh, going in, we're hitting this plan and adding restaurants. You get leverage out of it because a new director of operations doesn't need to come on until you get seven, eight restaurants, or six to eight restaurants, I, I would say. But you get leverage out of that aspect. The bigger chunk of that one really comes down to your manager and training, or we call our, uh, our AMP program. So you start thinking about your G&A growing. It's not really going to be because we're adding a lot of people at the RSC. It's about the managers and training coming into your, into your uh, G&A until they go to a restaurant. So you start to think about where growth may or may not happen. If growth comes down a little bit, G&A comes down naturally because you're just not going to have your manager and training program. That's usually a bigger chunk of that growth that kind of goes stair-step with new restaurants. One more question? Thanks. I'm going to do a two-part. Sorry. Only um, one's allowed. Come on. Um, <laughs> the 20% increase in media spend, was that within the existing marketing budget, or is that a 20% increase in the marketing budget? Um, and then related to that, the 12% you know, unweighted, unweighted, unaided awareness, how meaningful can that be as that stair steps higher in terms of bringing in new customers and what that ultimately means for sales? So we're still working through the 20% increase. Um, it could be a combination of both. So um, new incremental spend, and then there are some things that we won't have to do this year that we can reallocate some of those dollars to. So creating a new TV spot, which can be very expensive. So we'll kind of look into those things as we continue to finalize our budget. Your second question was the 12%. So that number is not going to jump from 12 to 20 like usually that like gradually climbs um, with the several years, right? We used to be in the single digits, and it's taken four to five years to get us in the doubles. But I think that media awareness with the incremental spend will help move those numbers. And we're also looking at them very much by market, right? So there's a lot of differences between California, Texas, and Florida, and Ohio. Um, so we continue to monitor it. But but the media spend and the incrementality there will help with that unaided awareness. We'll go ahead and do one more. 
I don't, does anybody want to hand uh, one hand over the mic real quick? Do we do we take it away? Oh, go ahead. I, I, I can just ask it. So I didn't hear much uh, today, and sort of expected to on the catering opportunity. Was that left off for a particular reason, or is that something that's maybe being de-emphasized, or you're still fleshing that one out? It looks like a big opportunity potentially. So I assumed you might have discussed it a little bit today. Yeah, we, um, uh, you know, it was in the growth overlays in our business because it's still very small. Um, I think it's around 1% or so of sales and continues to grow at a double-digit, almost 50% rate right. or so. Um, and we think we have a huge opportunity there. But really, I think today was emphasizing some of the things that are more about our core. But as Putnam t touched upon, we think there's some unique attributes to BJ's that give us ancillary sales growth opportunities whether it's how we want to use the beer club, how we want to maybe pulse and Pazuki pass, um, unique things to us. Catering plays into it. We continue to refine our, our catering menu and continue to grow that aspect uh, of our business. And as we mentioned, you know, we've got kind of a, uh, a plan to increase the loyalty. I think loyalty, everybody talks about it, and nobody has, quite, uh, nobody has cracked the code on loyalty in casual dining. Um, but we think we've got opportunities to figure out how we go after that to bring our guests, to get them to come in that fourth time. And that, then that becomes part of the dining rotation. And that allows us that personal, personalization with them, allows them to be in our database. And one of the things that we saw this year as we've gone through this is we can break people's cycle. So if somebody's coming in every two months, there's ways that we can get offers out there and go, oh, you're coming every two months we now got you to come in after five weeks. And that drives that frequency uh, in our business and allows us to reach out to them. So we're continuing to work through that. That's going to be a multi-year, I think Putnam mentioned that, like at, I think we're around 17 or 18% of sales right now in loyalty sales. Um, you know, over time, we want to continue to build that up over the years and try some different things to get people into it. And we'll be updating our program with a couple of different things over the next year as we test things. But there's this huge opportunity but you step back, casual dining is one of those ones where people are still trying to figure it out because our frequency is not the same as a Starbucks frequency or a QSR frequency. So there's different ways to do it. We're at this point now where we want to widen funnel. Meaning we want to get more people in because we know when we get them in there, we can drive that sales. Some of the other programs are more about how they optimize. We're a little bit widen the funnel, bring people in, and optimize. It's a little bit of an and statement for us. All right, everyone. Um, thank you. Let me uh, convey, you know, our thanks from the entire management team. We appreciate everyone coming out today to hear about the DJ's concept, our strategy, what we're doing over the next several years. Look, as you leave here today, I, I hope you remember that slide that had kind of the three takeaways. We've really got a clear plan on how we're going to grow sales, and that continues to be about how we widen the moat. We remain and uh, we remain a differentiated better alternative in casual dining. Talked about it on the awareness, the culinary, the ambiance. You know, reinvesting back into our business. Again, dirty word, reinvesting back in. But it's something that drives sales and is very important for us. We're improving margins. We continue to improve margins. Tom talked about that, how it's gone up each quarter. We've got other initiatives in place uh, to continue to drive that aspect of it. Those two 
That allows us to move into three, and three is accelerating that restaurant growth. Look, casual dining, it's a $200 billion industry. It's a big industry, and it's right to take market share. And that's what we want to do out there is we want to continue to take market share from both the independents that might not have the ability to invest into their business, but we've got enough scale to do that. And we want to take it from the other casual dining restaurants that frankly came to, you know, maturation, so to speak, in the 90s and 2000s, and they don't want to reinvest back into their business. They want to simplify and optimize and reduce the quality and the differentiation. And I know that sounds really exciting sometimes when you're a financial analyst to talk about reducing and reducing and reducing, but it only gets you to a certain point. You've got to build top-line sales. You've got to differentiate. You've got to invest back in. As I said, those two things allow us to generate a lot of free cash flow and build new restaurants, return to shareholders, and I think over time really drives meaningful shareholder value. So, again, thank you, everyone. We appreciate you coming out here. Uh, for us from California, braving the cold weather, we had to find jackets that I don't think any of us own, but uh, I hope uh, everybody learned something from BJ's today. Thank you.